Hi, my name is Hayley Douglas and I'll be reading a paper that I gave to the Bram Stoker Club titled The Contraceptive Train and Boats of Exile, Church and State Control of Reproductive Rights in Ireland. The paper's title draws on two important aspects of Irish reproductive history, the regulation and ban on artificial contraception and the criminalisation and stigma towards abortion. Both contraception and abortion were illegal for a long time and were used as a means for the church and government to control and subjugate Irish women. Some material in this paper is very sensitive, so take that on board. In 1927, a government report on poverty noted that the illegitimate child, being the proof of the mother's shame, is in most cases sought to be hidden at all costs. In this regard, the state had a position that illegitimate children were regrettable. Space was created for illegitimate children and unmarried mothers to exist within institutions, but the state did not endorse any means of preventing crisis pregnancies. State position was to suggest abstinence as a means of controlling pregnancy. This stance vilified female sexuality and the lack of access to contraceptives and abortion, coupled with the lack of sex education in Ireland, made crisis pregnancies impossible to avoid. In turn, this forced more women into institutions like laundries that were under church control. The importation, sale and distribution of contraceptives had been made illegal by the passing of the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1935. Family planning methods were incredibly restricted as a result. The state's strict regulation of contraceptives was endorsed by the church's hardline stance on contraception. The publishing of Humanae Vitae in 1968 confirmed this tough stance. This was a papal encyclical that propped married love on a pedestal and rejected the use of artificial contraception. The encyclical was mainly targeted towards the family unit and warned against the moral consequences of using artificial contraception. In Ireland, contraception was a family issue and many Irish men and women had hoped that, that the church would relax its stance on contraception. The average family size at that time was 12, so Irish families were significantly larger than other European nations. In 1968, 12,000 women were said to have been taking the pill in the Republic. The pill had been legalised for medical use as a cycle regulator, so it was not illegal to take the pill, however its use was not prevalent. There were organisations that actually helped women to access the pill, such as the Fertility Guidance Clinic, which opened in 1969, and they dispensed the, the pill as a gift in exchange for a cash donation. It had 167 clients in 1969 and 1,180 in 1970. By 1972, they had established two clinics and had 11,000 clients on their list. A similar organisation, the Contraception Action Programme, was set up by family planning organisations and women's groups in 1976. The group travelled the country and issued condoms in exchange for donations until 1979. There were legal loopholes in place that made contraceptives accessible to a small number of people who in turn began a chain of distribution within their communities. The desire and support for easier access to contraceptives was evident in 1971 when 40 members of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement boarded a train to Belfast in order to purchase contraceptives and illegally import them back into the Republic. The contraceptive train was widely reported on by the media and the debate around contraception heightened as a result. The women returned to Connolly Station and were met by a crowd of people there to support their protest. When being questioned by customs officers, the women were eventually let through with the contraceptives as the crowd chanted, let them go. The leader of the protest, Nell McCafferty, said of the protest, People agreed with us and that was massive because we were against the church and they were no longer afraid. You were touching a popular nerve, it resonated with women. A 1974 poll reported that the majority of people were in favour of changing the restricted access to contraception. 42% were in favour of contraceptives being freely available to married couples, 
16% favoured them being available on demand completely, and a minority of 33% were opposed to legislation. An earlier poll in 1971 saw 73% of Irish doctors favouring legalisation of contraceptives. This fell in line with a feeling of unrest in Irish women in the 1970s. There was a push for social change, with women beginning public campaigns. In October 1978, the Reclaim the Night campaign vocalised anger and frustration over rape and sexual violence against women, and 5,000 people attended a march organised by the group in October 1978. In 1979, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre was established, but marital rape was not made a criminal offence until December 1990, when the Criminal Law Amendment Act was enacted for cases of rape. But the late 1970s signalled moves towards change. In March 1979, Charles Hawhey, then Health Minister, signed the Health and Family Planning Act, which legalised contraception for married couples with a doctor's prescription. Contraception was not fully legalised until 1992, with condoms becoming readily available in 1993, but the changes for married couples were welcomed in 1979. The 1980s were declared the UN decade for women, with a focus on gender equality. But in Ireland, the 1980s were a dark period for Irish women, as the pro-life movement lobbied towards a referendum on the constitutional ban of abortion. This movement was reactionary. It operated as a backlash against the liberation of contraception a few years earlier. And abortion was illegal in Ireland under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, but the Pro-Life Amendment campaign was established in 1981. The Pro-Life Amendment campaign lobbied the government to hold a referendum to, institute, to introduce a constitutional amendment. Hawhey committed to the referendum as Taoiseach, and his successor, Garrett Fitzgerald, held the referendum in 1983. The amendment read, The state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn, and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. The wording of the amendment was highly controversial as it was the first state use of the term unborn. Unborn had not been used as a legal term before this point, so it was legally complicated. Garrett Fitzgerald, under advice from the Attorney General, proposed alternate wording that would clarify the amendment. However, his amendment was, to the amendment was rejected by a dull vote and the amendment remained unchanged. As a result, the Taoiseach campaigned against the amendment and it was one of the only occasions in Irish history of the government undermining its own referendum. However, it was accepted by a landslide in September 1983. During its 35-year lifetime, the Eighth Amendment caused a great amount of trauma and distress for Irish women. It was a tool for the church and state to control women's lives, keeping society and the family at the stranglehold of the church's moral teaching. Only some of the suffering of the Eighth is publicly known, but the first high-profile case took place in January 1984 just four months after the referendum. 15-year-old Anne Lovett died after giving birth alone at a grotto in Granard, Longford. She had concealed her pregnancy and her son was stillborn. Her death rocked her local community and made national headlines. And in the aftermath of her death, a national conversation began about the treatment of women who became pregnant outside of marriage. The tragedy of her death became symbolic of the emerging clash between church and state. At the time of Lovett's death, marital laundries were still in full swing. Set up in 1922 after the establishment of the Free State, Magdalene Laundries existed as a prime means of state control of subversive women. A 1930s report from the Department of Local Government and Public Health emphasised the importance in Ireland of specialised homes for fallen women. From 1922 to 1996, at least 10,000 girls and women were put into laundries against their will. Placed under the control of Catholic nuns, laundries were used as a space through which the church and state could abuse and exploit women effectively using them for free labour. Church and state colluded in the consistent oppression of Irish women. 
1983, it was estimated that 10 people left Ireland daily to access an abortion abroad. It's currently estimated that 12 people access an abortion daily. At least nine travel and at least three take abortion pills alone. The right to travel and the right to access information came after the landmark X case in 1992. Miss X was 14 when she became pregnant through rape and in February 1992, a court ruling prevented her parents from bringing her to the UK for a termination. She was not permitted to leave the country for nine months. This verdict was met, was met with unrest and direct action from protesters and the ruling was overturned in March 1992, a month later. As a result, a referendum was held in November 1992, which passed the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution. These granted the right to travel to access an abortion and the freedom to access information about abortions abroad, respectively. One particularly interesting case is that of Miss C, who was 13 when she became pregnant after being raped in 1997. As she was suicidal, she was taken into the care of the Eastern Health Board. This state organisation brought her to the UK for a termination. Her right to travel came as a result of Miss X. The case of Miss C highlights the hypocrisy of an Irish constitution that accepted the fact that Irish women wanted and needed to access abortions, but would not permit abortions to take place on Irish shores. Out of sight, out of mind. Every case of injustice brought the nation closer to the recent landslide for repeal. Two important cases in recent years highlighted the pain of the Eighth Amendment for a different generation. Michelle Hart became pregnant in 2010 whilst receiving cancer treatment. She was denied further treatment, but she was also denied a termination. She had to be lifted onto the aeroplane when she travelled to have an abortion in the UK. She died in November 2011. Her death alongside that of Savita Halepanavar in October 2012 acted as a catalyst for a wider movement to repeal the Eighth Amendment. While many of us are familiar with Savita's death, which occurred after she began to miscarry at 17 weeks pregnant, it's still important to remember. Due to constitutional regulation and the, de the detection of a fetal heartbeat, she was refused a necessary medical termination. She passed away from sepsis on October 28, 2012. Her death sparked national outrage as we vowed never again to allow that happen. The state has consistently gambled with women's healthcare, taking chances that they shouldn't. This has remained an aspect of Irish society and the recent cervical check scandals are indicative of that. I'd like to finish with an important point that legislation is not a foreign concept with no impact on everyday lives. It impacts people's lives in seismic ways. Generations of Irish women have seen their experiences defined by poor legislation. Not only does it create trauma, and in some cases it's actually marked the difference between life and death. It's important to be hopeful that future legislation can shape women's lives in a more positive way. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Matt Kennedy, a trans activist and poet. This quote is from a spoken word piece that Matt performed at the 2017 March for Joyce. As I read this, I'd like to think about everybody who is travelling today to access an abortion while we wait in limbo between repeal and future legislation. And I'd like to extend solidarity to those in Northern Ireland who still have to travel to England and Wales to access abortions. This country wasn't built for me. It wasn't built for us. It was built in the back of churches. I sat there too, with the women of Ireland on cold wooden pews, where they told us exactly what we could and couldn't do. There was no choice. We are building a new society in the vacant lots of the old, undoing the chains. My body would never fit their mould. I would rather they broke my bones than wait any longer to have my right, your right, our right to choose. Ireland is an empty house. We will not stop till it feels like home. Thank you for listening.